Hi, it's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm here for the CoveyCast. And it, this is a podcast about women reinventing themselves and or creating platforms for women to reinvent themselves at the best time of their lives. And I am so excited today to have Marianne Schnall, who is just a major feminist leader. She and I met each other at a UN Women event about reinvention the other day, and I quickly grabbed her and said, you have to come talk to my wonderful listeners. And she has a 20-year-old site. Can you believe that? She did a site called feminist.com. When you could still grab that URL, try that today. She did that 20 years ago. And she has been a feminist writer and um, thought leader for that long. And she also, God, she was so far beyond her time, has a a website back then called EcoMall, was one of the oldest environmental websites promoting earth-friendly living. She was like 30 years ahead of her time, but she's only 20, so it's okay. No, I'm just joking. Anyway, she's written for never, nearly every woman's magazine and written several books, including What Will It Take to Make a Woman President? And that came in 2013. And she's launching a whole new platform inspired by her book to advance women's leadership called What Will It Take? And you will be able to see more shortly at www.whatwillittake.com. And we're going to hear from her shortly. So hello, Marianne. How are you? I'm great. It's, I'm happy to talk to you today. Good. I know. We've been trying to set this up, so it's really exciting to finally get this all together. So what I want to do is talk about you are such a multiple reinventor. I can't even believe it. When you and I met on a panel for UN Women about reinvention, it was so interesting. that That's why I dragged you into this podcast, the CoveyCast, for us. Because you said you had a reinvention in your 20s that keeps on expanding and evolving. So can you explain a little bit about that? And in the process, talk about, well, we'll talk about your history, where you grew up and all that. But it, it may start there. Feel free. Yeah, no, I mean, thanks so much. I mean, definitely, I feel like my story is definitely kind of an evolving story of reinvention. Um, I know I even talked at that panel about the fact that when I grew up um, as a teenage girl, I was um, really sort of very out of touch with myself, um, you know, sort of obsessed with conforming and fitting in and, you know, looking at all the pages of the magazines and um, feeling like I needed to look like them, be like them. Um, I, you know, I think I talked about the fact that myself and most of my friends had some form of an eating disorder. Um, I even changed my name at one point. I mean, it was really What did you um, change your name? <laughs> Were you like Daisy instead of Marianne? Is it was it that kind of thing? I, I, I decided Marianne sounded a little too like country and uncool, and so I randomly, to my my parents' dismay, changed it to Chris. And I don't know, I, I can't really fully explain <laughs> to you why that was the choice. But in my like high school yearbooks, it actually is changed for like two of the years to Chris Schnall. Um, but to me, that really Hilarious. symbolized that I was really not accepting myself, felt like I needed to change. And, um, and I wasn't even aware that I was doing that um, until much later. And so, you know, it was just sort of, thing. I mean, my first, um, my, actually, my first job out of school was working for a literary agent. But after that, I wound up working at Us the Entertainment Magazine and had a very, um, you know, glamorous job in the sense that I was a reporter, I was interviewing celebrities 
red carpet and at movie premieres, all of these industry events. Um, everybody, you know, would would want to hear me, you know, my stories about, you know, who were the famous people I talked to, and so I sort of convinced myself that, um, you know, I, you know, since everybody from the outside was sort of validating, um, you know, what I my life was, that I was happy. Mm-hmm. But I had a sense that there was something that wasn't being deeply fulfilled, but I, I couldn't quite put my name on it. And then really a, a pivotal turning point for me um, was uh, my family was going to the March for Women's Lives in 1992, and I asked us whether I could cover it. And it was this, you know, incredible event, um, you know, thousands of people, um, including celebrities who were out there to, you know, support the, the right for women to control their own bodies. And it was my first time interviewing um, well-known people like Gloria Steinem, Jane Fonda, John, you know, Jonathan Demme, um, Sarah Jessica Parker, Cindy Lauper, all these well-known people who had come out to um, use their voice to support this cause. And it was a real epiphany for me. It was, you know, first of all, just being part of an event where so many people were there united around a common cause. And then it was definitely a feminist epiphany of just like, what do you mean <laughs> we, that this is something that we have to even like protest for, the right to you know, know. control our own bodies, which is amazing that we're still going through this and the year we're in today. Um, and so that was really the point at which I realized that there was something here that I um, wanted that was like sort of magnetizing me to it. I wound up leaving us, um, and two things resulted in that. One, um, my niche became interviewing well-known people who had, um, you know, a cause or an organization um, to promote, and I'm still doing that to this day. Um, I did that. I was working um, for InStyle Magazine, doing the Cause Celeb column, and um, it, you know I'm still doing interviews like that for a variety of outlets. And then you know I wound up uh, deciding, in a you know really sort of almost like uh, unheard of thing, to launch a website called Feminist.com back in. 1995, when most people didn't even have home computers to even know what the internet was, um, and that became this also amazing journey of me just, you know, sort of taking a leap, doing something unexpected, and um, and both of those um, channels for myself, both in terms of my writing and interviewing, and also, uh, you know, launching an online women's um, platform, have been um, complete reinventions that have only proved to be, you know, so so rewarding on so many levels and. Have have taken me in all kinds of unexpected directions. And how old were you when you decided to to reinvent yourself from the? Because I had a similar issue where I, you know, I started out at Women's Wear Daily and Harper's Bazaar and Vogue, and you, you know, that was a very proper place for young women who were intelligent and could write would go right. And and you how ha- I always had this sense of you know there's something else out there that's more important than hemlines and haircuts. And it was it, a lot of, you know, it was very hard to leave Vogue, which is, you know, basically the Cartier of magazines to say, wait a minute, this is not exactly what I want. It's great. It's wonderful. I can get, you know, I can get sample sale stuff. I can get a free haircut, but there's got to be something else out there. I mean, you must have felt a very similar kind of disconnection and, and it's hard to work your, back then it was very hard to work your way out, don't you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I have to say, well, first of all, I was, you know, definitely in my early 20s. Um, but I think what wound up happening, you know, for me was, you know, I had the experience, you know, of 
interviewing sort of, you know, well-known celebrities on the red carpet where we were both sort of, I was asking pretty inane, you know, stupid questions. And yes. they had been on the red carpet promoting their movie, piloting the same, same, you know, sort of sound bites. And then when I started to do these interviews where, you know, I interviewed, um, for example, you know, Meryl Streep, who was someone I had interviewed on the red carpet, but when I interviewed her about the organization that she founded, Mothers and Others for a Livable Planet, which works to end pesticide use in foods, and mm-hmm. I remember interviewing her, she was wearing no makeup, and I think she might have been wearing like overalls, you know, um, it was like at a, at a harvest event. Um, I felt like I was speaking to the real person. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you found out so much more about these people by talking to them about the issues that they decided to sort of represent, you know, whether it was like, you know, yep. Bette Midler, we cleaned up trash together with her and her husband and her daughter, the New York Restoration Project. And, right. so, and so I could, the, the thing that I learned that was really, you know, eye-opening for me, even when I interviewed Natalie Portman about the organization, she found it, she didn't found, she's an ambassador for um, Finca International, which works to promote microlending um, for women-owned businesses in developing countries. And she said to me, because I was saying that's, you know, sort of how does it feel to help these women, and she was like, no, I get just as much, if not more, from, right. from this work was right. that they were finding their most, even though you're told in our society that you should aim for to be rich and famous, that what's so funny is that when, well, to not every celebrity probably, but the ones I was talking to, they found that when they got there, it was pretty empty, and they were finding their deepest meaning from doing this type of work to make a positive difference in the world and connect with others around like a common cause. And yes. to me, that was just something I wanted to help to amplify. Yeah, that was my my pleasure when I finally got out of the just straight fashion thing. And when I got to running Mary Claire, the wonderful part about it was actually we used to do those kind we used to make them do stunts within those areas. And um, God, they were so much fun and was so much learning. And there was there was it, it was really nice to see them move out of the just fluffy, silly stuff. And it's wonderful that we'd finally gotten there. Hopefully, hopefully we can stay there. Talk a little bit about your background and where did you grow up, Marianne? So I grew up in New York City on East 79th Street between oh, First and okay. York. <laughs> um, I went to um, a PS 158 up until sixth grade, and then I went to the Fieldston High School up in Riverdale. Oh, you and were Fieldston. Okay, now I get yes. it. <laughs> Um, and after I graduated from Fieldston, I went to uh, Cornell University up in Ithaca um, as an English major, and then wound up moving, you know, back to New York City after college. Okay, Chris. Um, <laughs> so, and was it with a yeah, why K that name? or I can't C? Help you. <laughs> it was, you know, I remember back when we were growing up, you had to do it like, you know, K-R-Y-S to make it totally different from everybody else also, right? Well, this was C H R I S. I didn't even have that much originality, you know, to, <laughs> you to were it. Just but. going for an al- alternative <laughs> universe. That's so funny. So, talk a little bit about. You've interviewed so many amazing women, and you know, especially, you had a book that came out right before the last presidential uh, election called "What Will It Take to Make a Woman President," and that was 2013. So when you talk about reinvention, I mean, there are a lot of women who you've interviewed um, who have reinvented themselves. Who has the most interesting reinvention that comes to your mind and what did they do? 
Yeah, wow. I mean, there's, I mean, I feel like most of the women that I've talked to, I feel like reinvention is definitely, you know, a common theme, and I'm glad mm-hmm. that you're um, sort of focusing on it. I think particularly for women, um, mm-hmm. we often do need to reinvent ourselves, oftentimes because we've sort of lost touch with who we are when we're younger. Yes, um, yes. So it's sort of like a necessary um, process. But um, so I, I think there are sort of, you know, several examples that I can think of of people that I talk to. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, some of the people who have the, the most sort of inspiring reinvention stories are also people who have come from very difficult um, backgrounds or experiences, you know, and I, or, you know, who have really sort of overcome obstacles. So examples like Maya Angelou come to mind or like right. Oprah Winfrey. Um, I also, you know, and those are because they, they faced such hardships um, when they were younger and, you know, d- did such amazing things and, um, you know, really believed in themselves when everything around them was sort of trying to push them down. But right. then I always, you know, I had this, I remember when I interviewed Jane Fonda, um, it was right after her memoir came out, My Life So Far, and I remember her saying to me that she really felt like she hadn't come into her own voice until after her um, divorce from Ted Turner when she was 60. And and I remember that really struck me just because, you know, I remember I had a moment where I I felt like I hadn't really come into my own until maybe I was 30. And I I remember feeling like I'm, you know, so glad we finally came into our voice and power and then feeling like really 60 and 30, (laughs) you know, we really do need to help our um, young girls not have to, um, you know, lose touch with their voice. Um, and and have to wait until they're 60 to really have that you know feeling. So that's why that's so central to the work that I do through my writing, through feminist.com, you know, through this platform. I'm launching. What will it take? Is to really you know help women to um, know from you know the second they're born on up, um, you know how valuable they are, how important their voice is. Because I think we can agree that more than ever we need women's voices and visions. Um, and that's what the book was about. Was also the need for for women to you know, recognize their, the importance of their voice and their leadership abilities, because more than ever, we need women's leadership. So talk to me a little bit about whatwillittake.com. And it should be launching momentarily. And so tell me what will be different there? What would you like these listeners to do besides come and look? Um, What else should they be doing? And what should they be bringing with them as intent? Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, you know, all along when the book came out, um, I knew that I wanted it not just to be a book, that I saw the opportunity to also have a corresponding platform where you could find out more information, um, get more um, sort of resources, because I knew, and I've been working with them for, for decades, there were so many groups and organizations that work to promote women's leadership that people should know about and be connected to. So what, what will it take will be, um, and it's what will it take movement, and the idea is it's a movement to ignite and empower a new generation of women leaders that will be sort of a media event, collaboration, learning platform to really connect and engage women in all levels of leadership and sort of to be a connective tissue amongst all of the voices and organizations that work to promote women's leadership because I feel like right now a lot of, you know, what I learned from doing the book, yeah. even though the book, you know, what will it take to make women president um, had a focus on, you know, to some degree women's political leadership, what it really turned out is that there's so many of the same challenges cross-sector, 
so yes. many of the same um, obstacles that are holding women back in the corporate sector and the f- financial sector and yes. the media sector. And so it, the, my hope is that through offering um, both events, and we're planning to do regional and national events, and having an online platform where you can find ongoing resources, tools, um, and content, it will really help to have us feel sort of the power of having a collective movement so that we can harness, which I think is very vibrant right now, the sort of energy of women who are wanting to use their voices, wanting to hook into something, and wanting to step into their leadership. So, um, yeah, if you go to whatwillitake.com, you can sign up to our mailing list. Um, We're definitely planning a whole series of events and a lot of media programming, and it is to really be a megaphone for the voices and organizations and programs that are working in this space. So you're going to gather up. It kind of sounds like what I'm going to do with Covey. You're going to gather up all those little groups all around, or some are big, but there's many vertical people working deeply in, you know, getting young women, getting millennials, you know, to have their voice heard, or getting, you know, millennials to deal with um, unequal pay, or getting, um, you know, older women to do X, Y, Z. So you're going to become the sort of aggregator, and I can come to you, and whatever I'm interested in, having to do with leadership, there'll be pulls from all those communities. Is is that the concept? Absolutely. I mean, I am in really close conversation. I've been working with many of these groups, you know, for many years um, to really find out how can what use how can I use what I'm doing to sort of be of you know most use? In other words, we're not looking to duplicate other efforts. I'm right. really looking. That's to- what you find out when you're putting together stuff on the web. I realized that that's why Covey became. I decided the way I described it is becoming the policeman at the center of the crosswalk because mm-hmm. there's so many people already doing great things. You don't need to start it all over again, right? Exactly. And, you know, so it's just really having like a central hub where you can find everything. And then the other thing that I found people value about the work that I do, which I think is important, is the sort of wider, um, you know, effort of culture change, you know, which is what my book was about, was really Mm -hmm. talking about not just connecting people to these tools and resources, but having these conversations, having these interviews, having doing, you know, panel events, Mm -hmm. um, where we're really talking about, uh, and, and this, again, is also involving men. I always say this is not a women's issue. This is a human uh-huh. issue. Really talking about what is, ne- what, what is needed, what's going on culturally, what, what do we need to change in the media to really change these, you know, paradigms that are happening. And, again, this is also not just about women sort of, you know, coming in necessarily to do leadership in the way that it has been modeled for us, but really helping women to tap into their own, like, authentic voice you know, their own way of modeling leadership and bringing, you know, their experiences to how they, they, you know, do their leadership. Because I feel like right now we're sort of really crying out for sort of new models of leadership and power. You know, a lot of the people who I spoke to for the book talk about how they, you know, the, the model of power with or power to rather than power over. So I feel like there's two things happening, it's, and it, it also having those wider conversations um, even about how we parent our girls. And this isn't necessarily only about, you know, 
there's so many ways to, to get involved and support this. So even if you're not looking to run for office yourself, well, you, you know, we want to provide the resources to, to vote or to support a candidate that you believe in or you know, how to get involved on school boards or in your local community. It's really about all different ways of being a leader. That's one of the things I remember okay. when I interviewed Oprah Winfrey. She said to me, is, it really is about how you lead your life and how you, um, you know, sort of exist in your community really sort of just having intent and being a leader um, in, in just all kinds of ways, not just the traditional ways we think about it. That's really interesting. And I love the fact that you're bringing the men in. We had a very interesting experience at Moore when we were doing the Bright Conference, which is technology up at, we were supporting them up at Columbia for Columbia Business School. And it was all about the future of work. And we were doing a panel all about the future of women at work. And everybody was in the main auditorium. And it was, you know, probably 60% men and 40% women who were there at the main thing. When our panel came up, you're going to die. All the men left the room. Uh, and it was such uh, an eye-opener. It was so clear to us. They just said, this is not my problem. And that has been the issue all along. It's not their problem. And it is their problem. And until you bring them into it, um, it won't be their problem. And it was such an eye-opener. Can you imagine every single man left the room? Because well, the future that's, you know, of women at work had nothing to do with them, even though they were running most of the corporations. <laughs> You know, what I, first of all, that was why I interviewed men for the book. Um, and I've also had, when I've done, I've done several panel events when the book came out, and I had um, some of the men that were in the book appeared at my panel. So I had Gavin, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom on one of them, and I had um, Don McPherson, who's this, you know, uh, NFL veteran social activist who was in the book, speak on the panels. And I got such reaction to their their involvement and their contributions because, you know, the whole, it's not just about men wanting to support women and women's equality and realizing the world would benefit if we had women represented, but it's also about men increasingly want to free themselves from the kind of constrictive gender roles yes. that impact their ability to be who yes. they are just as much as women and girls. And yes. so I think we have to like widen it to allow them in because oftentimes, you know, it's also, you know, we have to find a way of letting men know that this conversation is relevant to them. And I've had two experiences where I had one photographer and one videographer at one of the events that I did who, you know, wouldn't naturally have maybe been there but had to because they were, you know, filming it, come up to me afterwards and say how they didn't expect to engage with the content and that they really did and thanking me. And, you know, so That's awesome. I think... We, it's really important that this is not framed as a marginalized, quote, women's issue. You know, it is a human issue, and men need to know that they are welcome and part of it, and they too will benefit. You know, these are men who have wives and daughters and women in their lives and colleagues. And, and right now, you know, I just think it's also not a matter of just um, women. It's a matter of diversity. You know, it's a, ma a matter of being a reflective democracy. You know, mm -hmm. we will, it, everything will operate better if we have that type of representation. Yeah, I feel like the whole men thing with where we are with women's leadership and bringing women to the top, I feel like it's the 2.0 question, which is we now have to bring men into everything. It just can't be us talking to each other. We've done enough of that. And um, it's time to bring them in. 
So let's talk a little bit about what would you say are the key obstacles for those wanting to reinvent? Just in general, I mean, what do you hear from women that our listeners will identify with? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are some key obstacles that have emerged that I think, you know, have that I've learned from my interviews and probably experienced many of myself. Um, the first, I think, is this idea that we want to, you know, please and be liked. <laughs> like, I think we're groomed as girls. Are we still that going that through that, Marianne? Is that still true? Or is that is that my generation? Do you feel oh, like, uh, you know, 30 year, uh, 30 year olds and 20 year olds are still stuck under that rock? I, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think in some ways it's the dangers has become more subversive. I think oh. that, um, you know, I think that, you know, girls and young, and young women, whether they know it or not, have these voices of, you know, self-doubt that, that are in their heads that make them sort of, you know, always, you know, question what they do and, and, their, and their voice um, based on sort of worrying about what other people think. I think mm. that is something that continues to plague um, women of all generations. And I think that oftentimes, um, you know, it is where we don't even realize. I think when I interviewed Arianna Huffington, she called it the obnoxious roommate in your head. You know, <laughs> you have to, like, really um, be aware of that voice. We may think that it's us, but usually it's like just, you know, this, this outside influence of, of trying to get us to, to, to doubt our voice, doubt our choices. And, um, and it results in sort of a lack of confidence. So I think that is definitely still an obstacle. And I also think, um, you know, that, I, that, I, I, that another obstacle is just you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to take risks. A lot of people who I spoke to um, talked about that. I remember even when I talked to Melissa Harris-Perry, that was a big thing that, that she spoke to me about. Um, this idea that, uh, it, you know, really we need to be able to step out there and be willing to, to, to fail um, and realize that our failures are not necessarily setbacks because that's where we learn, we grow, and that's where also we maybe aim for big grand visions, things that haven't been done before. That's the type of, you know, vision and grand scale that we really need women to be thinking on. Sometimes it means thinking out of the box, taking risks, doing things, you know, taking roads that right. have not been charted before. That's what we need right. women to do. Do you um, have any, I mean, examples of women who've failed spectacularly, who really learned from that? I mean, do you, was there anybody who you talked to who has said to you, you know, this was just flat out face plant, but... <laughs> this is, this is part of it. And, you know, I mean, of course we've got, you know, Hillary Clinton out there right now trying to, you know, talk about how you learn from failure, which is a big one. And anyone else who you've interviewed over time? I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. I probably, I mean, I'm sure that there are examples um, if I was given some time, because sure. I think that's a pretty common experience. And I do think, actually, I mean, obviously, the first one that came into my head right now is Hillary, and I'm right. reading her book right now. Um, I would say no matter what you think of Hillary or where you fall on the political spectrum, um, you have to admire the fact that she kind of keeps getting back up. Um, Absolutely. And even, you know, I think that even um, 
right now, even with her book out, she's still, you know, getting sort of that pushback. And I've heard, you know, where people say, oh, she should just, you know, sort of go away and stop talking. And I've heard her lately in interviews saying she's not going anywhere. I mean, she is somebody who I think consistently has modeled that um, you can get back up. And she talks a lot about that in the book. And so I think that she's probably is one of the sort of most, you know, important examples for us to sort of learn from because of the fact that, um, you know, she has suffered so much attacks, which I do think you have to sort of brace yourself. I mean, the other person who comes to mind, although it wasn't really a, um, a like a setback or failure per se, but I was really struck by my interview with Anita Hill. Um, ah, course, well, that was a big, well, that was pretty, well, that was pretty big, you know, she, she got so much backlash and I mean, that was huge, enormous, you know, people saying she's Absolutely. lying and, you know, making it up. And so that's pretty intense. I mean, I would call that bouncing back from a failure in many ways, right? Yeah. And that's why I wanted to interview her for the book was because I felt like, you know, this was something common to whether you're running for office or just stepping out as a woman in leadership that you have to kind of be able to have that resilience to um, brave personal attacks. So I really asked her about, um, how did how did how did she manage that? How did she do that? And she 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 said a few things. She said one, she surrounded herself by people who knew who she was. You know, she, mm -hmm. that would sort of be there to bolster her. She talked about also having sort of personal practices like praying, um, and you know, sort of just taking care of herself. But the other thing she said that really struck me, and I think we need this kind of courage, is she said that it would have been harder for her not to speak out, um, mm. like she would have lived with herself if she didn't do what she felt was right and so that despite everything else that was what was core to her strength was she was knew that she was you know standing for against you know injustice and standing for a cause yeah. and that was a source of her strength um so that really struck me um in talking to her yes and you and you had think you have to feel that today especially um and it's risky you know and today it's more risky because of all the internet and all the social media and all these trolls out there who want to shut women down who are saying anything. Um, so it's really, exactly. really, it's, it's, it's scarier now, I think, than ever before. And I have to say that it's really, I think it's a really sad state. I wish that we would get to social media that had everybody's name attached to it and that you shouldn't be allowed to make up names and be able to say all this, these hideous things without your name attached to it. I think people have to own what they say and we've gotten to a point where they don't. And so it just brings up the most vile of everything, I think. Anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about um, women today reinventing versus in the past. Do you have any sense or personal thoughts on, is it harder today than in the past to reinvent yourself? Is it easier? What's your sense? Um, you know, I again, I think, you know, culturally we still face many of the same challenges. I'm kind of dismayed, you know, in, 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 on one hand with just how many of those forces are out there sort of preying subliminally really on girls um, and young women and just women of all generations that, you know, sort of are telling this sort of false narrative um, just of, of with gender stereotypes and what women's value is. So I think those forces are just, they haven't changed that much. However, what I see promise and hope in is, um, and I guess this, 
you know, if you had to say anything positive about um, the times that we're in, um, is this awakening of women's engagement and women's spirit right now. And I think, you know, having, um, you know, been a part and covered um, the, the Women's March as an example, um, and just, you know, also knowing the numbers, I mean, I think it's now more than, you know, 13,000 women have stepped up to run for office. Women are just really newly engaged and energized and really looking to be a part of, um, you know, having their voices heard in all kinds of different ways. So to me, there's a new sense of um, purpose and um, activism that I think is really exciting. So I think that what we need to do now is kind of create that a, a narrative around that because mm-hmm. if you think that women, in, in my idealistic world a little bit, um, I think women, we, we, it's women's voices and women's leadership that are going to help to really, you know, steer humanity and the planet right now if we really sort of just help mobilize and harness that force um, because I feel like it's part of what's been missing um, from the stewardship of um, our country and the planet right. has been we're half the population and we're just rarely seated at tables where important decisions are being made and we really do need women's voices and visions. So the fact that we, I think we have to get that message out there that in, in all kinds of ways women can start speaking out, being leaders, being involved, and that that can be a transformative force right now on the planet that's desperately needed. Do you have any sense of why, I mean, the numbers are out there. I mean, when we put it down to its most crass base, what you, capitalistic numbers, the facts are there. Every study you have shows 30% women on boards, diversity in terms of all kinds of diversity in your workforce, all these things improve the bottom line. And yet we're still so slow getting there. I mean, other than just flat out fear of women being equals and fear of of people who are not white men being equals, I just can't understand, you know, I I mean, again, before the numbers were done showing that, hey, you're going to make more money (laughs) if you bring us in. Just let's talk talk about your personal greedy side. Um, I just can't understand when people don't even go in that direction, when it makes business sense or when it makes um, national security sense, or do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, other than just, I go back to Freud and think it's just fear of the overpowering mother figure and seeding any kind of um, power to that figure later in life is, and also some men who feel that is a zero sum game, which is not that we win if we share, there's more for everybody, but they look at it as one pie. And if I give you back a quarter of the pie, I lose. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I have plenty of thoughts on that, but um, <laughs> Our quick you know, thoughts. This, this down to like, you know, I mean, cause this is really what all my work and my, my book is about. And it's, it's, you know, what I found is like that very question is a lens into so many interconnecting issues that affect our politics and our culture and, mm-hmm. you know, just, everything. Um, but I would say, first of all, it's definitely part of an arc of, you know, it's, it's always 
astounding to remember that there was a time that women didn't even have the right to vote. I mean, we've right. been considered second-class citizens and sort of of less value than men for a long time. And, and I think sometimes we get complacent because we feel like we're sort of more yes. equal than we are. And when you do say some of those numbers, you know, we're 19.4% of Congress, 21% of the Senate. You know, when my book came out, um, you know, we were um, even farther along. I think we were, you know, 77th in the world in terms of females in uh, national legislatures. And now I think it's 104th. I mean, we're actually... Um, Sliding backwards. You know, yeah. How, so what I, I do think, though, what the, the main takeaways that I got from when I did the interviews for my book were a few. You know, one was, and we talked about this earlier, just women and girls needing to see themselves as leaders in the first place, because sometimes we're just not even, like, thinking to pursue those type of roles because we've been just sort of told that that's not the place for us. So I think changing um, the culture and, and how we sort of raise our, our girls is very important. I think that I also, you know, heard a lot about how, that we have to stop stereotyping, you know, strong, ambitious women. Um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talked a lot about that in yes. her, you know, interview about, you know, how, you know, young girls who speak their mind are, t are thought of as bossy and even just as, as women, you know, step into these roles, you can think about all kinds of examples, you know, of, of this, um, you know, they're seen as seen unfavorably and as, as, as unlikable the more successful they are, whereas the re reverse is true of men. And that can affect, you know, if women are groomed wanting to be liked, you know, then, then yes. that also is an obstacle. And this isn't just, uh, this is men and women viewing um, sort of powerful, ambitious women in this negative yes. way. Um, so we have to change that. And that, that's connected to monitoring the portrayal of women in the media. I really do think that we need um, in the media in all different ways to really um, be changing the way that we're telling women's stories, the way women um, are being covered, women leaders are being covered, because that creates our consciousness. And then yes. the other thing is that I heard a lot about was, you know, supporting working women and families. A lot of people talk to me about, um, the challenges, for example, you know, women who are in elected office face, um, you know, yes. whether they're going to run for office or once they get there. But this is true of all working women. We need to have better policies in place, you know, in terms of family leave, um, and that's for men too. And then we also need to encourage men to share in these roles so women aren't so overburdened um, with, you know, parenting and home responsibilities so they feel like they do have space to sort of, you know, advance through leadership change. So I, I think there's uh, so many different um, areas to work on and be proactive mm -hmm. in, um, but I do feel like there's a conversation right now that I think is ready to take on really thoughtfully some of these obstacles. I find there's just a new interest in this, and not just because, again, it's, it's I think one of the most important things is we need to change this as being like a feminist women's issue. We really yes. have to understand right. that our democracy operates better, even in the corporate world, companies do better. There's like research behind this. The more right. women and more diversity that you have, everything operates better. It's how it's meant to be. Um, and so to me, I just feel hopeful that we're sort of ready to dig in and, and create change in these areas. Yeah, I feel like, I, th I, I feel very optimistic too. I feel almost like in the wake of this total disruption, you know, maybe it's brought to light all these things that were bubbling along in certain pockets that had not been discussed openly. And now we're going to be confronted with them and we're going to finally deal with them. 
and um, hopefully have our arguments and hopefully find some headway. But yeah, it sure I, mean, I think painful. even you can look to the news. I mean, the fact that even with the current health care bills, that it really has been the leadership of some of the very few female Republican senators that have yes, been so amazing. Pivotal. Thank I mean, God they're standing up. A- Imagine if there were 50 percent female women, exactly. it probably female, you know, senators, it probably wouldn't have even gotten to the floor in such bad shape. Exactly. So I think why is it only three? And, and, absolutely. And my favorite is making maternity leave and, you know, an exceptional condition. It's like, okay, boys, <laughs> how do you think you get here? It's yeah. like, we birth both women and men. <laughs> it's a shared problem. Exactly. I think right now, as sort of like honestly concerning and disturbing as things are, it's all out there. The sexism, the racism, it's all out there for us all to see. And I just find that most of the time people, you know, it was easier to ignore and go back to your lives. I feel like right now people are paying attention and are like freaked out and realizing they're going to have to like get involved and and be informed um, that this is just not acceptable um, for any of us. And so I think there's a lot to do with that awareness and energy. So quickly, um, what about older women reinventing today? Harder or easier? What's your sense? Oh, I mean, to me, easier. Um, Well, nothing's easy. (laughs) Okay. So maybe I'll I'll reframe that. I would say that I, I have been so blessed to speak to so many um, you know, empowered, inspiring older women um, who range from, you know, whether it's been, um, you know, people like Maya Angelou or, you know, Oprah Winfrey or Gloria Steinem really comes to mind for me because, you know, I remember talking to her about aging and, you know, her whole, you know, she, she said something along the lines of, you know, that we should celebrate when we're 50 and a half as much as we did when we were six and a half. And she said, every age has its own discoveries and pleasures. And Gloria, who's been really a personal mentor of mine, is still out there with her, like, vital voice and, like, speaking and, you know, mobilizing and activating. And I think that, you know, even when that the example of when I spoke to Jane Fonda, I think as you get older, I think that you, you don't worry as much about all the stuff yes. about being like or, or, like, as much about how you look at all of these things that you're so much freer, you're so much Every year that I celebrate a different birthday, I always feel like I'm so much more centered in who I am, and I'm grateful yes. for that. That's a gift. You heard about my 20s and my teenage years. I'm not going back there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that for the world. I am so grateful for how I feel today. And yes. so I feel like we, you know, that it is, uh, it does get easier. And I think in many ways, I think I just saw Jane Fonda interviewed on something this week where somebody asked her about when was the time that, you know, it was something about the, the time in her life she would most want to be and what age would she um, most want to be. And she said today, you know, I mean, yeah. Jane Fonda is another example of somebody who, you know, is just, I mean, she's, I think she's about to turn 80 and yes. she is out there working and um, being healthy and um, being, you know, a vibrant part of like life and activism. I think the more that we have role models like that for us to look to, you know, the easier it will be for all of us to yes. embrace aging. 
Yes. No, I, and I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful, I feel so sad when I see people on social media saying, oh my God, I'm going to turn 45. This is terrible. I'm really depressed. And I go in there and I'm like, Hey, like, I got to tell you, like, be thankful. You're first of all, you're here, number one. And second of all, it is, it is so nice to get to the point where I remember my 20s and 30s when I worked at Vogue in, in the writer's room with six other people. I used to walk in there and if they didn't look at me the right way, I thought I'd done something wrong. It was like, what did I do? They don't like me. I would stand in the elevator and a big editor would get in and they wouldn't look at me. And I thought, it must be me. I'm like a nobody. I'm... And all that crap, I'm like, no, they were on their way downstairs. They were thinking about their budget. They didn't care about you at all. What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. And um, it's so liberating to get to the point. I think I can. you can go too far when you get a little bit older and you don't give a crap what anybody else thinks <laughs> at all. Um, mm -hmm. So I think you got to pull it in a little bit and still care a little bit, but it is a wonderful thing. So in closing, Marianne, let's just talk about like three tips and tricks for those trying to reinvent themselves today. Do you have any quick little thought enders? Yeah. Um, well, sure. I mean, the one, you know, it's funny because I had the, you know, honor of interviewing um, Dr. Maya Angelou twice. And there was only one point that she made in both interviews. So I, I took note and it was to have courage. She, she made the point that we can't practice any other virtue consistently unless we have courage. And to me, courage is just sort of like the underlying um, sort of, you know, value quality of ourselves we have to most sort of work on because just I feel like we need it for ourselves and in, yes. uh, in our lives and for the world right now. So that's is certainly one is just to break through whatever fear you have and have, you know, courage and you'll realize you actually have much more than, I think that's another thing she said, the more you do it in sort of small ways, the easier it gets to do it in, in larger ways. Um, the other thing is to celebrate your like uniqueness. I mean, I wrote a mm. whole book, Daring to Be Ourselves. We're t we tend to, again, that pressure to conform, whereas we, we are all like a unique individual with special gifts and special visions and a special voice. And that's what we need. It's not something to try to fit in. We celebrate what makes you unique. So that is definitely another one. And I think the other thing that I find very important to me, especially right now, is have a practice that allows you to sort of remain in touch with sort of your inner world and with your like true voice, um, especially right now with all of the outside inputs and, and social media and news. Um, I meditate every morning, even when I'm really busy and if I can only even get in a few minutes. But Me too. It some, really does help. Practice. Yeah, so that you can stay in touch with um, really your intuition and hear those little whisperings that might be telling you like you need to make a change or you're, you're, you, you, know, you're, you, you have a new calling or, or, or just what you need in terms of self-care. I think it's really important to prioritize your relationship with yourself and that does often mean having, you know, whether it's going out in nature, meditating, finding about mindfulness, doing something that allows you to just remain in touch with your spirit, um, I think is critical and will inform almost everything that you do. Well, awesome, Marianne. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to see what will it take. And I can't wait to come to some of your panels. And I hope that a bunch of our listeners will show up there too. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all you do too with Covey Club and, and everything that you've done throughout your career, Leslie. You, you have a very important voice and I'm, I'm grateful for all of your work as well. Oh, you're dull.
Thank you so much for listening to CoveyCast today and our conversation with Marianne Schnall. I find her so inspiring. She can speak so deeply about what it's been like to grow as a woman in the feminist movement for so long. And she's done the evolving herself and she's interviewed all these women who've reinvented themselves a hundred times and she really has a just a, a depth of knowledge that no one else I know has and I just wanted to tell you thank you for joining us and if you like the Covey cast and you know other women who are trying to reinvent themselves or need to reinvent themselves I hope that you will suggest that they listen to the Covey cast we do want to be helpful And you can find us on Podbean, or you can find us on iTunes. And, of course, you can always write to me, Leslie Jane Seymour, at CoveyCat, well, actually, CoveyClub.com. So it's Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at CoveyClub.com. And give me any ideas of women you know who I should interview, who are inspirational, who have reinvented themselves or in the process, or just tell me your thoughts about what you think about the podcast. If you like the podcast, please rate us. That will help us get to the top so other people can hear our stories as well and hear these wonderful stories about women who are reinventing themselves at the best time of their lives. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.